Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Good stuff. Can foie gras for everyone. <laughs> wow, right. you doing good, man? Yeah, I have to say alcohol makes a difference in the energy level. A huge difference. So, thank popcorn, you. popcorn and Diet Coke just does not cut it. No. Uh, so we're here today hanging out, just doing our thing. Yeah. And I have a question for you. All right. Chuck. Have you ever been to a bar? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Okay. I went to college. I know you have. That was a setup. Yeah. Um, Did you realize, though, that while you were at this bar, you were in one of the oldest businesses known to humankind? The oldest profession? No, not the oldest profession. (laughs) This is the oldest business known to humankind. One of. I did. Bars have been around a very long time. They have. But not as long, uh, it turns out, as alcohol. Does anybody who's listened to our How Beer Works episode? It's entirely possible that bread was invented as a starter for beer, which is pretty awesome. I mean, that makes humanity as a whole like a pretty awesome species. Um, The thing was, booze was around for a very long time before bars. So there wasn't a place where you just went to go drink. You just drank everywhere you went, pretty much. Yeah, you literally, like, you, you could drink at work, you could drink at school. There would be meetings and civic meetings. You would drink there, but there wasn't an establishment with four walls set up just for drinking at this point. Right, you would drink at, like, the Saturday night ritual sacrifice or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know? as you do. Yeah. So the first bars, then, that really kind of pop up are around the turn of... Not this past millennia, but the one before. And you can find them in Italy in a place called Pompeii. Yeah. And these aren't necessarily the oldest bars in the world, but they are one of the earliest established bars. And they were basically um, hot snack bars. They're called... Uh, that sounds gross. It does. Hot snacks? Hot snacks. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, chicken wings or... Sure, poutine. Poutine is a hot snack. That's a hot snack. That's the hottest snack. That's, uh, yeah. Because they took a hot snack and then poured hot gravy. Right. And uh, what is it, cheese curds? Cheese curds, yeah. That's hot, right? That is hot. Uh, you know, this was more like, I imagine, hot olives, hot, I don't know, hot tomatoes. The point is, is there was there was wine at these places, right? Yeah, they serve booze. And actually, if you've ever been to Pompeii, Pompeii um, as I have... You can see these places. They're like bars or countertops with holes cut out. And they put like jugs of olives, poutine, <laughs> and wine and stuff. And you would go down to this this area and hang out and drink and hang out with your neighbors and sure. chat. Sure. Like look at Mount Vesuvius over there. Isn't it lovely? <laughs> Think it's ever going to do it? No. We're good. Don't be ridiculous. You were drunk. Give me some more go wine. 
So again, these aren't these aren't the earliest bars, but they're among the earliest. Um, and the Romans were really kind of big with bars. In Rome itself, there were lots of bars, like there were in Vesuvius. Um, but the Romans also did something else that led to the spread of bars, and they built roads. Yeah. Well, first of all, they conquered the world, and then they built roads. Sure. And along these roads, there were inns for travelers, and in the inns, there were bars. Yeah, because if you were a tradesman uh, on a Roman road, the, it was scary at night. You might get mugged and killed. So <laughs> they would do their trading and traveling during the day, and then they would stay in these inns at night. And just like modern American business travelers, what else do you do when you're on the road like that? You go to the hotel bar, and you drink your face off. Right. And that's what the tradesmen did in ancient Rome. You celebrate not getting murdered that day on the <laughs> Roman road. <laughs> I traded some spices. I didn't get killed. So bring on the grappa. Exactly. And um, so out of this came the the taverns, the inns, the pubs. Like they basically said, that's great. You've got an inn, but we've got a little town and we could use a couple more, but we don't need inns. So let's just stick to the to the bar part. Those are That's how those evolved out of there. But um, the oldest bar in the world, probably, it's definitely the oldest bar in Ireland, but it could possibly be Guinness is investigating as we speak <laughs> if it's the oldest bar in the world. Yeah, right now. Yeah. Um, it's called Sean's. Has anyone ever heard of Sean's in Athlone, Ireland? Yeah, you've been there? It's, it no. sounds pretty neat. You've heard of it, though? Uh, he's heard of it. That's enough yeah. to cheer. It's not bad. Sure. Um, it, was, it was founded in uh, 900 CE, and actual, real live, no joke Vikings used to get wasted there. And this place is still around. Like, you can go get wasted where the Vikings got wasted, which is pretty amazing. I guess they would, they would eat mushrooms and then kill people all day. Right. They, they would go berserk. Go berserker. Yeah. Right. Remember that? So uh, the coolest thing about Sean's, actually, is um, it, it predates the town that it's in now. It used to be, for 250 years, yeah. just Sean's Bar and this old Roman road. And apparently people got tired of, like, having to drive home after getting wasted at Sean, so they right. just built their houses around it, and that's where the town of Athlone, Ireland came from. That is true. And uh, Wait, interesting fact. That's not true. <laughs> interesting fact about Sean's Bar. In 1987, it was owned by Boy George. Yeah, the Boy George. Yeah. Not the one you were thinking of. Right. The Boy George. <laughs> Yeah, I guess he, I don't know, he thought it was a safe investment. It had been there for, you know, that many years. Right, yeah. It's not going anywhere. But he got out of it. He's like, nah, I think he went broke. Someone in the first show said, he went broke. It's like, well, that's mean. Yeah, but it could be true. Yeah, I think it is true. So we did a little research on your town, and we were very pleasantly surprised to find that, you know, your town was founded on a bar, right? Did y'all know that? Gassy Jack. That's right, Gassy Jack. Within 24 hours of landing and founding Gastown, Gassy Jack built a bar. That's the first thing he did. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to have a town. He woke up the next day and went, I'm going to build a bar. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he built the Globe, which is not there. It's, it's, it was at the corner of uh, Walter and Carroll Streets, I think, in Gastown. A water. What? Live corrections. <laughs> So water and Carol. Hey, I said Carol right. Come on, give me some points here. Well, the way I look at it is we just saved these people from having to email us. <laughs> right. 
We save some actually, time. Actually, it's not Walter. This is actually kind of efficient. Yeah. Yeah. This is cool. We should just do every show live. <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's a statue of Gassy Jack, and, um, and we think very highly of him because of the fact that he built a bar. But he did things backwards. And his name was Gassy Jack. Well, and Gassy. And we found out it's not Gassy like you think. That it was Gassy because he was talkative. Did you guys know that? Boring. Yeah. I was all pumped up. I was like, this guy farted a lot and owned it. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, just let that be and my he was, nickname. He was clearly proud of it because he, he let people my hero call him Gassy for like Jack. 10 minutes. Yeah. He let them erect a statue that says Gassy Jack. <laughs> that was just because he talked a lot. And they do have a statue there, right? Yeah. At Water and Carroll Streets. So Vancouver itself would have older bars than it does if, like Atlanta, where we're from, uh, it hadn't burned down uh, in, what was that, 1886. Uh, quickly rebuilt, of course, because you're a strong city. But um, in Victoria, we have the Six Mile Pub, 18, 1856. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. And uh, Garrick's Head Pub, also in Victoria, 1867. So that is not bad. As far as old as drinking establishments go. No, but uh, Gassy Jack kind of thwarted convention by building the bar first and then the hotel. Because yeah. that whole tradition of uh, having a bar in a hotel survived long past the Roman roads. Yes, there were pubs and taverns and everything, but that didn't mean that there weren't bars and hotels any longer. Um, and that made its way over to the New World, which is here. <laughs> That's all of us. And, and along the way, one of the reasons why this whole custom and, and um, tradition made its way over was because you could make a lot of money yeah. being a bartender because you probably own the bar. You probably own the inn that the bar was in, and you're probably making the booze that you were selling. So you were just making bank. So the, the bartenders actually were a, among the wealthiest of, of the socioeconomic states. Yeah, they were, you know, the upper tier of society. Exactly. Uh, in America, we had the same thing, like Josh said. We had inns that had the bars. But then in 1832, the U.S. Congress said, you know what? Let's pass a law. Let's call it the Pioneer Inn and Tavern Law. <laughs> and let's just say you don't have to stay in the hotel to get drunk there. You can just come in, get soused, and get on your horse and, and crash it on the way home, I guess. Somebody just clap for the Pioneer Inn and Tavern Law. Really? Yes. We won't stay here. <laughs> right. But it was a cool law, and it changed everything because all of a sudden you could just have a bar and a place where you could just go drink. Yep. And the industrial age changed everything, too, because a place like, say, New York City became this, this beacon for immigrants to come to and, and be skilled laborers and work in factories. And they brought with them their love of bars. And they said, what the hell is going on with this town? Like, where are all your bars? We want a bar here, a bar there, a bar there, a bar there. We want a bar there. Where are all your bars? We know and how to make whiskey, too, which exactly, is Exactly, yeah. Like, like, just leave it to us. We'll open the bars. Um, and very quickly, bars sprouted in neighborhoods and became uh, customary, like, pretty much overnight in the United States. Yeah, and they were sort of like they are now in, like, the best towns. They're the center of civic life. There were... Yeah where people congregated. It was the center of politics. In fact, back in the day, it was untoward to actually have legitimate advertisements and political campaigns. That was no good. What you could do is get everyone loaded on election day 
And they even had a name for it, which was... Uh, swilling the planters with Bumbo. Yes. And Bumbo was a rum, and the planters were the voters. The voters. And basically, whoever got the most people drunk on election day won. Like, almost literally, that's the case. Yeah, which is um, pretty solid George plan. George Washington, who's the father of our country... That's right. <laughs> he uh, he made his first bid for the Virginia legislature and lost because he didn't he didn't cotton to that kind of thing. He didn't swill the planters with Bumbo. No, he did not. And he learned his lesson because the next time he ran for the legislature, he spent something like eighty percent of his entire campaign fund on booze on election day, and he won big time. He figured it out. That's right. And uh, to this day, well, it became rife with corruption. Of course, anytime you're getting people drunk to vote for you, eventually yeah. <laughs> they're going to evolve as a nation and say, you know, maybe that's not such a good idea. So let's outlaw drinking on Election Day altogether. And for many years that was the case. And in a couple of states, South Carolina and Kentucky yeah. and America, <laughs> they still won't let you drink on Election Day. Yeah, the bars are closed. Which is weird and archaic, and it's on a Tuesday, which is strange. Yeah, but they have, like, really efficient, quick... Elections. They They're just over and down. Everybody's like, let's get this over with. The bars are closed. This is awful. Yes, you're elected. They do their drinking at home, I think, on election day. Probably. We'll be back to Stuff You Should Know live in Vancouver. Right, Josh? Right. Hold your horses, everybody. You know, buddy, I was just hanging out with my very cool nephew over the holidays. Uh-huh. And he is a budding photographer, and he showed me his website, and I said, that looks like a Squarespace website, and he said, Uncle Chuck, it is. Awesome. And it looked great, man. It's drag and drop. It's intuitive. Uh, you don't need to learn how to code. He has a great time with it. He's showing off his pictures and getting business. Yeah, well, plus, if your cool nephew gets into any troubles, he can contact Squarespace's excellent customer support. They have email support and live chat 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, and if you need a logo for your company, don't spend a ton of money. They have an easy logo creator. You can get a really quality logo for your website at squarespace.com slash logo. Plus, all plans have commerce options. So from hosting an entire store to accepting donations for your personal blog, it's right there for you. Yeah, and it's going to look good on every device from your laptop to your tablet to your mobile phone. Yep. And folks, we got a deal for you. You can try the product risk-free just by going to www.squarespace.com slash stuff. You're going to get a 14-day trial with no credit card necessary. And if you like it, it's only 8 bucks a month after that, including a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And with that offer code STUFF, Josh, you can also get 10% off your first purchase. So take our word for it. Get a free 14-day trial with no credit card necessary. Just head on over to squarespace.com slash stuff. Uh, so we're in New York City. Let's get in the Wayback Machine. Okay. We- <laughs> A, a full-size Wayback Machine, so we can all get it. Go back to New York City. It's uh, 1820, mm-hmm. and the first celebrity bartender is uh, well, he's not born because he's old by that point, right? <laughs> but his name was Erasmus Willard, and he worked at the City Hotel in New York, and he was famous. And he had two really neat traits that turns out to be a celebrity bartender. He was ambidextrous, and he had a photographic memory. So he could make drinks with both hands and recognize your face as you're coming in the door and be making your drink with one hand and recognize his face. And then and we say his because only men were allowed in bars at this point, by the way. It's true. Right? Ladies? It gets better. It gets better. It gets better. You guys hang in there with us. Eventually women could go to bars. I don't know if you knew that. 
<laughs> so Erasmus Willard was the first dude, and he sort of paved the way. He was known as the best-known man in the city, and he paved the way for Josh's hero. My hero. Jerry Thomas. Yeah, come on, give it up for Jerry Thomas. <laughs> so Jerry Thomas. Like, are we supposed to know who that guy is? Yeah, everybody's like, you know, tell us more about him. Why is he your hero? I'll clap later. Explain. They're always asking us to explain. <laughs> um, Jerry Thomas was this dude who uh, was flamboyant. Yeah, he, I like to say he had a little, a little Liberace in him. You know, definitely. He would tend flashy bar, guy, very flashy. He would tend bar with like diamond rings on both hands, diamond stick pin in his tie, uh, literally a rat on each shoulder while he's tending bar, and this guy rats. And this guy, his signature drink was called the Blue Blazer, yeah. which was scotch and I think a little bit of sugar and some water. But you would pour it from wine glass to wine glass on fire with rats on your shoulders and diamonds sparkling in the flames. And, like, this is Jerry Thomas, which is pretty awesome. Like, that in and of itself warrants mention, you know, yeah. 150 years later. But he also had the brains and the creativity to back it up. And basically, in Jerry Thomas, you have everything that we know about cocktails and drinking and going to a bar in this one dude's person. Yeah, he, you know, he bartended in New York for a while, had his own place, and then the Civil War started. And he was like, I don't like all this killing of each other's thing. So I'm going to go out west and do my thing out there for a while. And you tell me when that Civil War is over, and I'll come back to New York. Which he did. He spent some time out west and yeah. uh, in saloons, I guess, applying his trade. And <laughs> that's right, that's right, West Coast. And uh, <laughs> that is a place. You just got pandered to, my friend. The West Coast is a thing. <laughs> that's right, West Coast. <laughs> Good job. Isn't that what they do? Uh, that works. I think that's East Side. Oh, I thought it was. <laughs> or maybe, was, maybe this. I got kicked out of my gang early on. I was so bad at it. This is this is West Coast, clearly, right? <laughs> so he goes back to New York and he says, uh, "You know what? I'm going to write a book. I'm going to I'm going to spread the joy of my craft." Yeah, he's going to take like everything that he's learned through his travels, all the inventions he made, yeah. and puts it into a book. Yeah, all the way back in 1862. It's really the first bartender's guide ever. Uh, you should do the honors here because it's the greatest book title. Well, there's three titles. It's called The Bartender's Guide or How to Mix Drinks or The Bomb Vivant's Companion. <laughs> I, I like, like The Bomb Vivant's Companion. That's yeah, the best. For sure. Especially when you're like wearing diamonds on both hands and rats on your shoulders. It's The Bomb Vivant's Companion. So he had a lot of flash, like we said, and not necessarily uh, the other bartenders that followed in his footsteps didn't really necessarily go that far. But what he did do was he provided uh, craftsmanship and artisanship to bartending for the first time. And he was the first guy to really say, you know, you should take pride in what you're doing here and, and making a good drink. Yeah. And dress up. Will it kill you to dress up a little bit? <laughs> Would it kill you to put a rat on your shoulder for once? <laughs> <laughs> so they don't bite. <laughs> Much? Uh, so and we'll talk a little more about Jerry Thomas and what he did. But while he's working, this is like the boon, the heyday, the initial boon of drinking, basically. Before then, everybody drank and they drank all the time. But this was like 
going and getting a drink was a, a cool thing, you know? It was legit. But if you listen closely, while Jerry Thomas is mixing his blue blazer, there's a, a drum beat in the background. And if you listen, it sounds really, like, stupid and wrong-minded. And, and if you really focus in on it, you realize... <laughs> It's the drumbeat of the temperance movement, uh, which managed to get prohibition passed, not yeah. just in our country, but in your country. Yes, let's all boo the temperance movement, shall we? What a bad boo. idea. And the Canadians knew it was a bad idea way before we did, because you had prohibition yeah. for a very short time, and went, <laughs> yeah. this sucks. Yeah. It's just stupid. You had it for a couple of years during wartime from, I think, 1918 to 1920. Right. It was provincial otherwise, but you had a very nice Canadian loophole. If you have an ailment, you could get booze. You could go to, even during Prohibition, you could go to the doctor and say, Doc, I got, I got the... I got the shakes. I got the shakes. <laughs> I need some booze bad. I got the, I got the sits. I got the, I got the colds. I got the jimmy legs. I, I'm, I'm awake. Doc, I'm awake. Just give me some booze. <laughs> And, and the doc would be like, yeah, sure. Yeah. All you had to say was, I need some booze. And uh, in Ontario, in one year, in 1923, anyone have a guess on how many prescriptions for booze? Just in Ontario, everyone. <laughs> 41. What do you say, 400,000? No. Double it. 810,000 people were so sick that they needed booze. In one year, just in Ontario. In one province, yeah. So we were really impressed by that number. So as, as is our usual want, we went and looked at the 1921 Canadian census. And we found... Apparently you can do that. That 810,000, the number of prescriptions in that one year in Ontario alone, was one-tenth the entire population of Canada. <laughs> and we were like, wow, the numbers really add up. Yeah. Canada's pretty cool. <laughs> like, that's when it really broke on us. We're like, all right. You are a very sickly people. <laughs> we we needed you your medicines. Better. Yeah. Uh, and it is funny to see it play out all these years later with the marijuana clinics. Yeah. It's like it's the same thing. I got the sits. Stuff. I'm awake. <laughs> I got the shakes. Oh, you need some marijuana. I don't eat enough. <laughs> you have the neuropaths here, right? Like you can just walk in and, and talk to a dude, a neuropath, and they'll say, oh, well, you clearly need some marijuana. <laughs> So this was a very dark time, not only for bartending as a craft, because it was just starting to become like a legitimate thing and respectable thing, but for booze, period, prohibition was bad because uh, there were a lot of bars, but they just weren't legal. I think there were twice the number of prohibition bars than there were legal bars yeah, there before were 30, prohibition. In 1927 in the U.S., there were 30,000 speakeasies, which was twice the number of legally licensed bars before prohibition. So it's clearly working. So clearly prohibition was just a great idea all around because the mob was like, yes, come here. We can take care of you. Just look for the green door and you'll find a speakeasy. Yeah, and uh, it was bad for bartending, though, because whoever the bartender was was, who, was the guy who could get the booze. And who could get the booze didn't necessarily know anything about booze, for one, or making good drinks. And it wasn't necessarily good booze. Like, yeah. it would literally kill you. Or or um, strike you blind. Yeah, like, you, ever, you ever heard the saying, oh, this will make you go blind? It's made, it happened. really made people go blind. <laughs> like, that's, to a lot of people. Yeah, that's where the phrase comes from. There was, a, there was a, a batch of industrial alcohol that I guess the U.S. government thought was going to fall into the hands of bootleggers, which it did. Um, 
So they decided to poison it. And a lot of people died. And the American government was like... <laughs> and like walked away. It's not, it's not very much talked about. We found out about it, so we're like telling everybody. Because that is messed up. But I, I think in, uh, what is it, Chuck? 1928 alone, 50,000 people died from bad liquor. And that's not including people who were paralyzed or struck by Yeah, what that means actually just occurred to me. That means 25,000 people died and 25,000 more people were still like, oh, I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are the chances, you know? Yeah. Anything to take care of the jimmy legs. Yeah, I got the shakes. So the other cool thing about prohibition is uh, since all the rules are out the door, basically women said, I'm going to a bar. And you're not going to stop me. I've come a long way, baby. So women were now congregating in <laughs> bars. And men all of a sudden went, this is great. I don't know why we never allowed women in here. Because we've just been getting drunk by ourselves and sort of looking at each other and going home at the end of the night. And that's sort of weird. Which, which as we'll get to, uh, eventually became a tradition at bars. <laughs> that's right. Only home alone. <laughs> But at least there were women now, and they were getting south right along with the guys, which right. is great. But it was because there weren't any rules. It was yeah. like a speakeasy was operating illegally, so a woman would come to the door and be like, what, are you going to not let me in? You know, like, you're not even supposed to be serving booze anyway. Yeah, and there's another unbelievable fact here that Josh dug up that I still take issue with. Uh, apparently, up until the 1980s in Alberta, where's that? <laughs> that way? This way. <laughs> Is that east? It's that way. Apparently in Alberta, they had laws on the books in, up until the 1980s that still were gender-specific with bars. I know. Hey, man. We, it's crazy. We're just telling you guys about it. We didn't create the laws. Well, I think it might have been, a, I don't know if it was enforced. Surely not. Because they had the 60s and the 70s too, right? No. They're no, just they now catching up. Forward to the 80s. <laughs> so prohibition happens, right? And... Um, Everybody's like, that was a really bad idea. Let's never do that again. Let's repeal it. And, um, oh, let's go to war. So World War II happened. And that actually had a pretty significant effect on bars, too. Uh, apparently, up here, they sent all of your guys over to Europe to fight. And your guys came back and said, there are these pubs in Europe that are awesome. So let's build them everywhere. And then after that, like, yeah, we got the pubs. How about some sports bars, too? Let's mix those in a little bit. And that's pretty much how things went for a while in Canada. In the U.S., um, our guys apparently all went to the South Pacific and came back and were like, tiki culture. And tiki was huge in the United States. Not a fan here. I don't understand this at all. Like, how do you not like tiki? There's, like, fun uh, shirts, right? Yeah. All the drinks are good, very, very tasty stuff. Uh, the restaurants... That you go to to drink are fun. It's just nice. Yeah, I'm a pub guy. I don't. I don't see why you have to differentiate. That's you know? true. Anyway, so that's how things were in the U.S. and Canada until there was a very dark time that settled over the land. Not as dark as Prohibition, but pretty close. And this was the age of the fern bar. Does anyone know what a fern bar is? Any ever heard of that? You know how you go to Red Robin. And there's like Tiffany lamps and like terrible drinks and all that stuff. Well, you can thank the invention of the Fern Bar for that. Like, have you ever seen uh, Three's Company? Remember the Regal Beagle? 
That was a fern bar. And in the 70s, they were all the rage. Yeah, there was a guy in San Francisco, and he went by the name of Henry Africa, because that's a super fun name. <laughs> his real name was Norman Hobday. <laughs> and he, he opened his bar, Henry Africa's, because Norman Hobday's is a really bad name for a bar as well. well. Plus, also, he apparently all the time wore safari gear and like a pith helmet. Yeah. And so he went by Henry Africa. He and it, Jerry it, Thomas were sort of similar, I think. They were uh, both flamboyant. A little. One yeah. ruined things, one did great things. Right. <laughs> so he opened up Henry Africa's. There was another one in San Francisco, too, in the early, uh, was it? Yeah, the 1970s. And it was called Perry's. And they were like, you know what, let's get rid of these classy oak dark bars that everyone loves because they're awesome. And let's put in ferns and Tiffany lamps and fat chairs and let's bring the lights up and let's serve nasty uh, drinks mixed in machines. Nasty from drinks. From bags of, of mixed chemical flavored things. Uh, yeah, and I have an idea. This is going to make us a million bucks. I'm going to make a gun that shoots soda, water, and orange juice out of the same thing. And everyone apparently said, yeah, it's the 70s. Who cares about anything? Let's go this way for the firm bars. And yeah, they did. True. And it was the sexual revolution. So the ladies that were already going to bars now felt like, hey, I'm in a bar and I can be like uh, more aggressive all of a sudden. It's, a, it's the hip happening times. I'm Diane Keaton. This, can, is, uh, this is what they said to themselves. I can uh, look for Mr. Goodbar and, uh, and, and, and have a drink and go meet a man. Uh, I'd, li- I'd like to that connect. Was my, that was my lady from the 70s impression. I, I, I have to see Mr. Goodbar. Uh, looking, searching for Mr. Goodbar? Looking for Mr. Goodbar? What no one it? knows but you. No? Has nobody ever seen that movie? No. Oh, my God. That was a pity clap. <laughs> they don't have Diane Keaton in Canada. Have you seen it? I think my Three's Company reference is way more well-received. Way better. But the point is, you you could get bad drinks in these bars, and it's sort of a dark time for the craft of bartending. Like the Bahama Mama, the Kamikaze, um, the... uh, Mudslides. Yeah, the Harvey Wallbanger, which apparently was so popular, it had its own um, mascot. It was like uh, basically a drunken version of Ziggy. Just wandering around, and I guess like you would get a sticker or something if you ordered a Harvey Wallbanger. This is the level of thought people were putting into drinks. Yeah, at if the you, time. If to sell a drink, you give a sticker out, then it's that's not a place you want to be in. No, especially Ziggy with like X's for eyes. <laughs> oh, is that what it was? Pretty much. Well, I changed my mind. I think he had like one of those stink lines coming off of him. <laughs> it's kind of nice. I'll, I'll get you one for Christmas. They have them on eBay. So this is the way things were going for a while. Uh, until this very fateful meeting between uh, this guy named Dale DeGroff and a dude who owned um, a restaurant. And he wanted DeGroff to set up a bar for him. And he said, you know what? I don't want this usual firm bar crud. This is awful. This is New York City. Like, we got to do this right. Yeah. Let's, let's get back to basics. And he tossed Dale DeGroff a book, a very important book. What book, Chuck? The Bon Vivant's Companion. Yes. From 1862. Everything came full circle. Yeah, and Dale DeGroff was like, this is amazing. We can uh, bring craftsmanship back into bartending. And let's use real ingredients. Let's get rid of these stupid swirly mixing machines and these bags of chemical fruit-flavored things. And let's use real fruit because there is such a thing as real fruit. 
and we should put it in drinks again like yeah. they used to yeah. in the 19th century. Right. And that's what they did. And the bar was saved. So when you go to like the Cascade Room or the Diamond or I don't know if you guys have been to Boulevard. I know it's like pretty new. But if you finally do go and you enjoy a cocktail there, we did our research. Uh, and I hope that was dead on because I, so. I really put us out there just then. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, if you go to a place where there's a decent cocktail and somebody's really putting thought into it, you can thank this Dale DeGroff guy for bringing it all back. But really, you should thank Jerry Thomas to tell you the truth. Agreed. Now, do you understand why he's my hero? See? They love Jerry Thomas. But let's talk a little more about him, right? So, like, at, at, at the bars, as they're evolving and bartenders are evolving, they're going from diamond-studded to, you know, just normal. Um, the cocktails are evolving, too. Like, early on, basically, everybody made their own booze, and they had it in a jug with three X's on it, and they just turned it up. And that was, like, their cocktail. It's how they drank. It's the good uh, old days. Yeah. Like Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> Turn the 3X jug up. Um, and then when, uh, when Jerry Thomas came on the scene, he's like, we can do better than this. There's some cool ingredients that I want to kind of mess with and create new stuff. So originally there were punches, mm -hmm. which is a huge bowl of hot booze that everybody drank from. The, the, the bumbo that the planter swilled. Right. Right. Then there was a toddy, which apparently from what I can gather is just like a single serving hot punch. Right. And then there were slings, and slings were the ones that had the most promise. Those became what we understand now as cocktails. They were basically booze, mm -hmm. um, a little bit of water, a little bit of sugar, and then maybe some fruit juice. And Jerry Thomas looks at the sling and he goes, I can do something with this. And he creates what's called the Baroque Age of cocktails, where there's just like this great experimentation going on. Nobody knows what the hell anybody else is doing, but everybody's trying new stuff. And um, all of these, the, the foundation for what we know now as cocktails came out of this era. Yeah, and the first cocktail was uh, mentioned in print, the word, in 1803 in Amherst, New Hampshire, with the slogan, it's excellent for the head, because it was a morning drink. It was... You were supposed to drink a cocktail. That's where it comes from. The rooster cocktail is where the word comes from. And if you drank too much the night before, you would get up in the morning and make your little fizzy cocktail drink with bitters. And it was uh, it's like the hair of the dog that some of us know and love. Right. You would drink your cocktail, get punched in the face by your wife, pick up your axe, and go back out there and work another day. That's what they used to do. Jerry Thomas said, you know what? I love a morning cocktail as much as anybody else, but why can't we keep drinking throughout the day? Let me see if I can mess with this. And why save alcoholism for the morning? Right. So uh, through this Baroque era of uh, drink making, it was very, very nuanced. Like you would have like a sour, and a yeah. sour was just booze, citrus, and uh, a little bit of sweetener, usually maybe curacao or something like that. And then you would change that dramatically by adding soda, and then all of a sudden you had a fizz. Or if you wanted to use um, booze, a little bit of grenadine, I think. Yeah. Or was it curacao? Sweetener and um, brandy or something, you would have a daisy. And then in Mexico, they added tequila to the daisy, and in um, Spanish, daisy is margarita. So that's where the margarita came from around this time. Yeah. Right? Got some margarita fans out there, huh? So Jerry Thomas was very influential, but he was, uh, 
if you ever pick up a copy of the Bon Vivant Companion and try and read this thing, it's, it doesn't translate that great to today's um, proportions. Like, what is a glug? Like, literally, like, three glugs of this and a, a pinch of that. And, uh, well, I guess pinch is easy enough. But uh, Well, no, I still don't understand pinch. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. But what if you're, like, uh, a giant big meaty or something? Hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a lot more than normal. That's a good point. So it took, like, cocktail historians uh, to, to kind of read this thing and bring it into the modern era because back then sugar came in a big loaf and sugar wasn't like refined like it is today and no. ice you know was uh it was a big deal yeah sure outside you had to of the winter chip it away exactly how you wanted to and so it took cocktail historians to really kind of translate all this stuff right and they did and uh, along the way jerry thomas dies but he creates this great body of work that's added to over time and then eventually we come to like the streamlined classic cocktails that we have today like the martini or the manhattan and all of this was from the work of these like wonderful genius people who are like fighting on the front lines against the temperance movement and making life better for everybody here heroes real heroes you know shirking out of like the civil war and all that stuff yes just doing god's work basically The martini, we're going to talk about some of these classic cocktails. The martini, uh, if anyone here drinks martinis, it's always... Any martini fans? <laughs> I love martinis, says the guy with the PBR in his hand. <laughs> Throw some martinis right now. I'm just going to put these back in my helmet and drink them from my straw. <laughs> so the martini, if you've ever had a martini, it's very dependent on the individual, on how exactly you like it. Everyone says that they like make the perfect martini, but the ratio for vermouth to gin and... Uh... No, no, no. I make the perfect martini. <laughs> See? Everyone thinks they make it. How do you make it? Uh, okay. I use um, two to three ounces. Okay. Well, I th- use three four ounces. Four ounces, ounces. <laughs> Three, like a skosh over three. Uh-huh. Three ounces of gin and half uh, an ounce of vermouth. Okay. Uh, stir it with yeah. some crushed ice. Sure. Because it gets colder faster. It's way better. Strain it. Um, sometimes if you want to get a little crazy and you want to go original, uh, the martini is actually supposed to have orange bitters in it. A couple of dashes of orange bitters. What? Yeah, you say what, and it seems weird, but you don't taste the orange. It just does something different to it. And then a couple of olives. All right. I martini. like a little olive juice. I drink mine dirty. Do you, do you really drink your sturdy? Oh, yeah. Man. I like it. It's salty. It, I don't know. Is that wrong? <laughs> no, no. No, that's the thing, Chuck. That's the key. There is no you wrong enjoy way, right? it, there is no wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. But the origins of the martini <clears throat> are equally contentious because everyone thinks they invented it. Uh, there was a drink in Martinez, no, no, no. California. I invented the martini. <laughs> <laughs> there was a uh, place in California called Martinez, and they, uh, in Martinez, they made a drink called the Martinez, and they claimed that the martini came out of the Martinez, and that they are the inventors. But they're just one of several. Right. There's another one that um, said it's just named after Martini and Rossi, the, the vermouth makers. Is, which, does anyone else make vermouth? Oh, yeah. There's tons of other vermouth. Why is that the only one I ever see anywhere? I, I guess marketing. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's the worst kind of vermouth, too. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Like every other vermouth on the planet is better than Martini and Rossi, and that's the one that everybody knows is Martini and Rossi. I feel like a heel. No, no, you're fine. Okay. You're fine. If you enjoy Martini and Rossi, it's cool. Patronize me. <laughs> I'm getting you back for that one, dude. Oh. West Coast. <laughs> yes, we're on the West Coast. Drinking. 
What about the uh, the daiquiri? Yeah, the daiquiri uh, was invented in Cuba by an American who was there working in mines and was bored and uh, went to a bar and said, you know what, why don't you take some rum and some lime and some sugar and mix that all up and let's make a drink uh, and let's call it a daiquiri. And that's how the daiquiri was born. Yeah, and then the firm by bar ruined in Cuba. it, you know, by yeah. making the, the making thing it you, frozen. you take out of the freezer and put into a blender and put like a fifth of rum in and just get wasted and... Um, that's the firm bar version. Okay, and of the your daiquiri. wife punches you, and you get your axe, and you go to work. <laughs> you can't work on a blender full of daiquiri, believe me. <laughs> the uh, the Tom Collins has an interesting history, um, kind of dorky now, but in New York in the 1800s, it was a big, fun joke to to tell everyone that this guy Tom Collins has been talking about you yeah because apparently like just going to a bar to drink wasn't amusing enough like they had to jazz it up with hoaxes you know they didn't have ziggy stickers at the time no (laughs) so there was no tom collins of course it was just a big hoax but apparently and it was a big laugh back then to tell people that so bartenders got the idea like hey these people come around asking where's this tom collins i gotta have a word with him so let's make a drink called the tom collins so when they come in and ask for it to serve it to them and they have to give us money right Easy sale. Easy peasy. Every time. What about um, the mojito? Does anybody here like a mojito? I like a mojito too. A good, a good mojito. It turns out the, the mojito might be the oldest cocktail in the entire world. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, what? Mint? A little sweetener? Right. That's a different drink actually. <laughs> it's uh, mint, soda water, uh-huh. some sweetener, and uh, rum. But originally, the reason they put all this stuff in, because these are pirates drinking this in the 16th century. Um, and yeah, the reason they put all this stuff in was because the stuff they were drinking, which is kind of like a proto-rum called tafia or agua gadiente. Hey, nice. <laughs> um, it tasted so bad that you had to put all this other stuff into it. Um, and so eventually they introduced copper stills to Cuba and started making like really good rum there. But they were like... No, I still like the mint and the sugar. Yeah. This is a really delicious drink. So that's the mojito. That's Old right. drink. Uh, here in Canada, you have a drink called the Caesar. Another popular morning drink. And uh, <laughs> Man, they love the Caesar here in Canada. <laughs> I know, oh my God. They're like, we had eight this morning. I have been making those for years unknowingly. Calling them Bloody Marys the whole time. I did. I, my friend taught me a recipe. <laughs> he taught me a recipe that had Clamato in it, and um, it was delicious. And so I was like, well, this is my Bloody Mary. It's with Clamato. I did not know it was had a different name. Right. So I'm going to call it a Caesar from now on because it is delicious. Yeah. It is pretty good. And I really, it, it's way better with the Clamato to me than just regular tomato juice. It's, it's good despite its origins. Apparently the guy, I think his name is Walter Chell yeah. from the Calgary Inn, um, he went to Venice and tried a spaghetti dish and was like, I want a drink that tastes yeah. like that. And he came up with the Caesar, which you guys love. So you love spaghetti in a glass. A clam dish, basically. Yeah. What would be really good in this drink? Uh, let me mash snails. up some clams. Uh, clams, yeah. It's <laughs> a great idea. It, it is, is a good delicious. drink. We just. Um, and then, of course, 
we figure you guys would probably beat us to death with your shoes if we didn't conclude this podcast with a lengthy, lengthy discussion on Canadian whiskey, which you call rye. Which we're big fans of, actually. And in, uh, in Toronto, for the first show that we did, um, we said, we're going to talk about Canadian whiskey. And everybody went, rye! And we thought everybody was going, why? And we, we just like looked at each other like, oh, f- we just lost the crowd. This is not good. Something, like, something I don't get it, man. I thought, they would, I thought they would love this. Yeah. Uh, it turns out we finally, everybody calmed down. One person basically raised their hand and, and addressed you guys for us and said, uh, everyone's saying rye. We call it rye here. And we're like, oh, okay. So just disregard the last like 45 seconds of panic that you saw us go through. So we understand now you guys call it rye. But That's we call right. it Canadian whiskey. Uh, the first distillery here in Canada was opened in Quebec City, you may have heard of, in 1769. That was number one. And no. then by the 1840s, there were over 200 distilleries, which is not too bad. You guys love making your whiskey because you had people from uh, Europe and Scotland and Ireland coming over and saying, we know how to make this stuff. We know how to spell it without the E, like the rest of those dummies. And that's why you spell whiskey without the E. It was because of those immigrants. And uh, a man named John Molson is credited as starting the first distillery in Canada, whiskey right. distillery. And, and your rye is very similar to our bourbon, uh, except the process is different. Like uh, Both of them have corn, a lot of corn in them, a lot of uh, malted barley, and then a little bit of rye. The difference is in Bourbon County, Kentucky, where they have the soberest elections in the country... Um, ironically, ironically, yeah, uh, they take the the corn and the rye and the barley and they ferment and distill it and age it together. You guys take your barley and your corn and your rye and you make liquor out of them and then you bring them together at the end, which is why rye is a blended whiskey, uh, like Scotch, actually. Yeah, and apparently the rye part of it is the smallest uh, grain, the smallest amount of grain that they use, but it provides the most flavor. So right. I guess that's why you call it rye. And so um, during the Civil War, our, our Civil War, when our, our country was torn asunder, you guys were totally <laughs> fine. Um, we were busy fighting. We weren't. Our forefathers were. Um, the Clarks were killing the Bryants. Yeah. <laughs> I feel really bad it's about okay that. man it's all good <laughs> so uh during the civil war <laughs> during the civil war our our distilleries shut down like we're like we have other things to focus on um but we still need booze so canada said we got plenty of it here you guys go and after the civil war um when our distilleries went back online, there was an enormous amount of competition still because everybody loved your rye. You know, we were like, oh, I just got my leg amputated. Give me some more of that stuff. Yeah. And you guys were more than happy to oblige, so much so that the American distillers were like, Congress, we need you to step in and do something about this. And Congress did. They said, any... No, it's true. They said, any... any um, booze that's manufactured outside of the United States has to have its country of origin on the label. So in 1890, a very, very popular whiskey from Canada called Club Whiskey became Canadian Club. And it's still around today. Because of a law. 
because of us, because of our Congress. Thank you. That's right. And uh, Canadian Club remains super popular still to this day. And in the 1960s, one of the reasons, one of their cool little advertising tricks was they had this cool campaign called Hide a Case. 1967, they said, well, eh, you know what we'll do? Well, let's appeal to the uh, rich drunks of the world and let's hide a case of whiskey in some remote area and leave clues in magazines. And the rich drunk said, this is fantastic. Yeah, this I is have, exactly what I've been looking for. has something for. to do with my time. I've been wanting a free case of Canadian Club for a long time. Right. I want to spend $50,000 finding that free, free case. So they hid them in places like uh, Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, the Great Barrier Reef, uh, Angel Falls, Venezuela. And um, they hid, I think... The last one in 19, <laughs> the last one in 1980, they hit in Washington D.C. Yeah, from 1965 to 1980, they hit 25 cases, and it didn't go quite according to plan. Um, I think the first case that they hit at Kilimanjaro was found by accident, like 10 years later. Yeah, like a guy just tripped over it. Yeah. He's like, "Oh, a case of Canadian Club is here yeah. for some reason. I guess it's mine. I'm taking it. Good fortune." <laughs> so, uh, and then the last one by 1980. They kind of given up on the whole thing. It was in Washington D.C., and I think they let the people who found it watch them just set it down and back away, and they just walked up and they're like, "Hide a case, catch the fever." But <laughs> the cool thing is, is there's a bunch of them out there that have never been found, still yeah. hidden. So if there are any rich drunks out there <laughs> with, some, with a passport and some spare time, there's some. Whiskey that you could buy at the store, or you could just spend a lot of money and go out and try and find it. Right. And that's all we found out about Canadian whiskey. <laughs> you got anything else, man? I'm just glad that people can see your jazz hands live jazz because they do it a lot. He does that in the studio for me, and I'm just like. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about that. Uh, did you bring a listener mail? Uh, no, sir. No. Okay, we'll have to dub one in later. <laughs> Sorry. Someone uh, prepared one to hand to, like, someone have the paper airplane of a listener I, mail I like that can fly at me. I encourage people to throw stuff up here. Okay. Um, so I guess we'll wrap it up. You want to wrap it up? This part of the show. There's more. Just this Don't worry. Part, everybody. There's it gets more better. treats in store. Um, if you want to know more about bars, you can type that word into the search bar, how stuff works. But um, I don't think it's going to bring anything up. You can try it anyway. And if you want to get in touch with Chuck and me, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And, as always, join us at our luxurious home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.